veggies, get to the chopper. The budget is well underway and motions were made and then quickly withdrawn. And the police are getting more money, but less more money. We'll also touch on how we use transit stations, new helicopters, and the doomed metro line. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 19. 18. 18. Episode 18, Professionalism. We'll just jump straight into the rapid fire to introduce our wonderful episode. Uh, As we enter month seven of the current 16th month winter season, we're almost halfway through, the city declared the first seasonal parking ban. Sometimes in a big snow event like this, certain areas like that one road right beside your house are not cleared to every resident's satisfaction. According to Twitter, though, there's a single person responsible for all these failings. So if you ever see a pile of snow that you want cleared, simply email don.ivison at edmonton.ca. If a downtown rezoning application goes as planned, an enterprising corporation could literally one-up Rogers in Ice District advertising. Stantec Tower, the largest tower west of Toronto, pitched the idea to install signs and lighting that could project advertising from its 69th story. This may force council to debate putting a height restriction on advertising. What a time to be alive. In the most anticipated, long-awaited, and five years overdue non-event in living memory, Thales handed over the signaling system, calling it complete, on December 4th. And, like many of my university papers that I handed in after pulling an all-nighter with only a casual understanding of the material, I am confident that what Thales handed over does meet some definition of complete. That said, I did get a lot of C's in university, so... Speaking Municipally is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Uh, The Podcast Network recently held its holiday party at the ATB Entrepreneur Center. You were there, right, Troy? I was. Had a great time? Yeah, and I saw the wall with all the entrepreneurs writing their names and logos. Pretty cool. The Entrepreneur Center is located at 4234 Calgary Trail here in Edmonton, and they also have locations in Calgary, Grand Prairie, and Lethbridge. It's a great resource if you're starting a business, as they can help you with banking, of course, but also mentorship, opportunities for networking, and they host workshops. You can learn more at atbentrepreneurcenter.com. And speaking of the Alberta Podcast Network, the whole point of this network is to, you know, enhance the community and neighborliness. And when the rising tide rises, all boats float to the top. And I'd like to plug my literal neighbor who does the Pop Cycle podcast. I discovered at the meeting when ATB fed us dinner for being new podcasters that my neighbor actually produced the podcast. So that was pretty cool. And now that I plugged your show, Eric, you have to come over and help me drywall my kitchen. Thank you. On a more serious note, uh, we do take journalism at least casually seriously on this (laughs) podcast. Uh, So we do have a retraction to issue. The Uh, first in our podcast history, I believe. Yeah. uh, Might not be because we've been correct all this time, but just no one's corrected us (laughs) up till now. Uh, In a previous episode, we had mentioned that Mike Nickel had taken a leave of absence when he was running for the UCP nomination. That, as it turns out, is not true. Uh, We did bump up on that, but there was reporting that suggested hey, he took a leave of absence, and we're like, okay, sure, he took a leave of absence, that explains some stuff. Uh, In actuality, he did not take any unpaid leave, he was still a sitting councillor during his UCP nomination run. Budget was this week, Mac. Um, They're still debating, as we record this on Thursday night, we don't know yet what the final numbers will be, but they've said yes to some things and no to some things. And they've said no to saying let's talk about some things that's true uh we're gonna get into the police and some of the stuff that they 
got. You heard some of that in the open. Uh, but first, I wanted to read this one quote uh, from a CBC article quoting the mayor, which I thought was pretty interesting. The mayor said, at the 11th hour, a number of, let's say, newer members of our council who haven't done this before put an awful lot of proposals on. So he's kind of lamenting that some of the new people to council have put forward things to discuss at budget that he felt maybe shouldn't have. Heaven forbid a new councillors lead with ambition and vigor and try to get their constituents' needs met. Um, oh, was that cynical? Sorry. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> he said, some of it is, quite frankly, queue jumping. I said we have to hit pause on this. I mean, I get it. It's a very busy budget cycle. They're doing all the big budgets, utilities, capital, operating, four years. There's a lot to discuss. Yeah, and my cynical joke aside, uh, it does make sense. If we set a culture of at budget time, you can basically say, oh, my constituents want this, and you can essentially filibuster the budget is what it is if you right. keep tacking on amendments. There's a process for getting infrastructure projects done. There's a process for getting certain neighborhood renewal projects done, and there's a scheduling queue and a priority queue. And most council votes are unanimous, so we have a pretty decent system of agreeing on these things. Yeah. If we start setting the culture of, well, at budget, whatever you want, just throw it on. What's a few hundred million here or there? I can see how that can break down. That could get a little dicey, no doubt. Uh, Paige Parsons from the journal did write something she called budget bits and kind of talked about a number of the different discussions that council had had so far during the budget. And I pull out just a few of them that I thought were interesting. Transit, obviously, is always talked about at budget time. Uh, there was two things that caught my eye. One is that admin has proposed cutting late night bus service completely from Sunday to Thursday and reducing it on Friday and Saturday night. Yeah. So, well, okay. So I will say uh, I had a meeting this morning with our good old mayor about uh, transit fares in a follow-up to a Twitter argument that I had with him. So Stay tuned for a future episode. He specifically and emphatically said, I do not want to encourage people to get on fights on the internet to get meetings with the mayor. So that, the two are not related. <laughs> uh, start a podcast and then you get meetings with the mayor. But one of the things that came up and I sort of thought about is he mentioned how the bus system was basically at capacity right now. We have a system where buses are full and we're talking about how do we reduce service and cut service hours so we don't have to increase the budget, so we don't have to pay more money to transit. At some point, we have to look at all the things we're doing where we're raising fares to get extract a little bit more revenue even though we know it decreases ridership. We're cutting late night bus service. We have to wonder... Transit is our largest line item, give or take. The police is larger. Transit is pretty big. big. It's Transit big is pretty darn big. If we don't want to actually do it, let's consider not doing it. Like, if we want to scale back transit so we don't consider it an essential service, then let's commit two feet first and save us a couple hundred million dollars a year. But if we're going to spend all of our city money on transit, things like getting people home safely from a bar when they're drunk seems like a place you want to have a transit system. That seems like a critical need. This is kind of my issue with that proposal. It's like all the discussion that took place to get us late night bus service in the first place is now ancient history out the window forgotten just because we need to save a few dollars at budget time. Like that seems a little crazy to me. I mean, we didn't start late night bus service for the fun of it. And we certainly didn't do it because it was cheap, right? We did it for a reason. So why doesn't that reason still apply? There might be some suggestion around ridership or usage, but we never went into it thinking it was going to be packed from 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. 
Yeah, and if it's a case where there isn't enough usage of the service, well, then we need to talk about it. Maybe a 40-foot bus isn't the right solution, but we do have smaller buses. Or a $4 fare, which is another thing that came up in response to a counselor question. Um, ridership expected to drop by 280,000 rides annually if they increase the fares, the single cash fare, up to $4. This is just a discussion about fares, and we know that there's elasticity in transit pricing. A city auditor report from uh, 2016 spells out the numbers. For every 1% increase in fares, that's likely to decrease uh, transit ridership by 0.32%. So clearly someone in administration is doing some math um, and they're saying, okay, look, we have this much shortfall. Let's just increase fares and we're going to lose this many people, but because the increased number on the whole system will make more money and that helps us at budget. What that doesn't help us is providing transit better transit yeah, yeah it comes back to the point where if we're investing in something let's invest in it let's not invest in it to say we've invested it like for example vision zero maybe let's not say we're a vision zero city. let's <laughs> actually do it let's make it happen okay moving on from transit two other ones i want to mention then in 2014 according to a response to a council inquiry uh every household in edmonton on average basically sent 875 kilograms of waste to landfill I am assuming that's per year. Targets now suggest that by 2022, with all of the changes that we had talked about previously in previous episodes, we'd get that down to 462 kilograms. Doesn't sound like 90% to me. Doesn't sound like 90% at all. No. It's an improvement, but not 90%. Yeah, when you set the bar as low as we've set it, anything's an improvement. Sorry, listeners, this is going to be a cynical episode. <laughs> what are you going to do? Okay, last one that Paige Parsons mentioned was, I think, a response to a question from Councillor Banga about what happens if the UCP wins the provincial election and repeals the carbon tax, as they've promised to do. And the response from administration was basically, it won't matter much. I think it'll matter. Admin this has happened a couple times where administration and elected officials have said, you know, if the new government wins... Um, yeah, nothing's going to change. We'll because... work with them. We have to work with them. Yeah. And I think a lot of this is just because, and I mentioned this last night, Jason Kenney is going to win the next election, and there's not much many of us can do about it. We can limit the amount he wins by, but I think we're going to have a new premier in 2019. So at this point, people who are smart are saying, well, let's not anger the bear before he gets elected. <laughs> you saw it. I'm not ready to make a prediction yet, but you're ready. Yeah, well, and you heard it here, and I'll I'll enter election pools with that bid. But you saw this in 2016 during the night of the presidential election. You had Don Iveson specifically saying, you know, I'm not going to say anything bad about Trump because yeah. he might be a new president. And, I mean, I'm not the main foreign policy advisor for Canada, but Edmonton does have business dealings sure. with the U.S. And I think materially, if the carbon tax gets cut, we have a couple billion dollars that the province expected for transit that won't be there. Yeah. And I think it's just going to be LRT lines get on the chopping block if the carbon tax goes and there's no replacement. No question. Speaking of disappearing funding, MSI, our municipal sustainability initiative, that funding is expiring pretty soon, and the province actually announced a new deal for funding municipal infrastructure. That's right. The budget, when it came forward from administration, basically I recognized that MSI was going away in this funding cycle and that there was no confirmed replacement for it, but they were sort of hoping the province would come up with something, and they did. Uh, Follow-up to the city charter work that Edmonton and Calgary have done, um, they announced uh, a new deal 
essentially for the two cities. So in the first year, there's $500 million that they're going to split. And then it varies after that. Um, Don Iveson wrote a blog post about this and said, if you look at the five-year average of MSI, it's a 42% reduction from what Edmonton would have had before. He called it a tough negotiation, but basically said, you know, we wouldn't have stood for anything less. Um, Also announced alongside the funding for MSI was $400 million a year shared between Edmonton and Calgary for transit funding. And the one interesting thing about this new deal is going forward after the initial couple years of funding, it'll be tied to provincial revenues and how well our province is doing economically, which in some ways is good and in some ways might not be so good. You called this a new deal, but FDRs, it is not because economists tell us we want to build infrastructure when there's a downturn. This will only give us additional infrastructure money when there's an upswing when we're flush yeah yeah and i assume the province won't want the city just taking that money and putting it in a bank account for sad sorrow times so that may lead to us getting slightly less bang for buck on our infrastructure projects but at least we do have a new sustainable deal it is encouraging to finally see some actual numbers out of these city charter discussions that have been taking years we did see city charter phase one give cities the ability to uh, change traffic safety act something that has long been requested by cities yep and neither edmonton nor calgary did anything with it so kudos to you guys <laughs> back to budget we want to talk about the police because there's lots of police stuff so they were looking for a, a new increase. helicopter yeah. let's let's not forget about the helicopter helicopter Go ahead, Matt. <laughs> $87 million over the four years. They wanted to fund 159 positions. Um, they talked a lot about the need to fund cannabis enforcement and that we've grown now because of the annexation to the south, both of which, if you read the budget documents, were pointed out as reasons they overspent in 2018. So why they needed more money is beyond me. Um, and yes, they wanted a helicopter. Yeah, so thankfully... Um... I give council a hard time about not having a backbone and letting administration walk all over them and some council stood up and slapped the police down and said, no, bad police. You don't get as much. Kind of. Yeah. They're still giving the police, you know, what, what is it? 70 million. 75 over four years. Yeah. 75 million dollars down from 87. So they said, we're taking this 12 million and we're keeping it. And you guys have to make do with 75 million more dollars. Which sounds bad, but credit where it's due. We thought there would be absolutely no debate about right. this. And quite a few questions. Councillor Knack kind of took the lead on this and suggested that we could do something different to reduce the amount of money they get. Councillor Esslinger asked about um, the size of the police force and, and the response back from administration there made it clear that we're the fifth highest per capita number of police officers in the country behind only Montreal, Halifax, Vancouver, and Winnipeg. So we've got 183 officers per 100,000 citizens. So I was encouraged, as you say, to see some pushback from council on the police budget. Here, I'm going to take credit for it. We know that some councillors listen to the podcast, so maybe that was the push over the edge that they needed. What else could we talk about? Clearly, the marijuana item just made it so glaringly obvious about the... I'm going to call it cash clawing from the police. Totally. To request so much money for something that you don't have to enforce. Because in order for the police to say we need more money to enforce this cannabis legislation is to say that we weren't enforcing impaired driving before. And that scares me. So I'm going to say that this is probably just 
an overreaction to cannabis legalization. Councillor Henderson asked about that. And, you know, I think the police talked about, oh, edibles are coming and we're not really sure. I think the city manager, Linda Cochran, said also that it's true that there hasn't been that many things to worry about from a policing point of view so far, but it's early days in legalization. So we'll see what happens there. They did get more money for officers. So 24 officers for cannabis enforcement, but funded not through taxes, but from a one-time um, funding package that council approved. And I, I understand that the hope here is that, you know, all the noise that was made about the province not coming to the table with enough to support municipalities, they're kind of hoping the province will somehow come to the table with more money for policing cannabis. So the table is inside the building, but what's on top of the building is the helipad. And I think we need to talk about helicopters because you have long since spoken with extreme chagrin about police helicopters. Yeah, the helicopter is an issue for me. <laughs> so in this police uh, or in this budget, the police were looking for a new helicopter. There was a motion put forward from Councillor Henderson to chop it. So $6.2 million. Let's just take it out of the capital budget. He asked, you know, do we need two helicopters? Um, Councillor Hamilton suggested that instead of funding it the way we would normally fund it, let's do it through debt. So the city borrows money, the police pays it back. And they approved that motion with a request that the city or that the police, sorry, come back to the city with a business case. Let's take a step back because you were talking in the pre-show about a lot of helicopter history that I had no knowledge of. So how many helicopters does the police currently have? So we have two. I've written about helicopters before because, as you were kind of saying, why do we have helicopters? Like, there's not late night television chases with helicopters chasing down cars on freeways. Anyway, um... We purchased Air One in 2002. Uh, the push for that kind of started in the late 90s. And at the time, it was said that Air One would have an expected life cycle of 30 years. And now for those who got C's in university math like me, that'll put you at 2032. Um, it's not yet 2032. So they leased a, a helicopter in 2001 and then they raised some money and they bought it the following year. Um, and then in about 2006... So five years or four years later, they said, actually, we're going to need to either rebuild that or replace that helicopter. And they started the push for another helicopter. And that's how we ended up with Air 2 in 2008, which cost us $2 million. Cool. So we have two helicopters at this point. Uh, when they purchased Air 2, the rationale was the first helicopter was under maintenance about 30% of the time. And that's why we needed a second helicopter or why originally they thought we needed to replace the, the first one. That does make sense to me. I don't think we need a helicopter. But if we're going to have a helicopter, it's because we need the helicopter for that, you know, once in a lifetime event when that kitten is on the top of Stantec Tower and the fire truck ladder just can't reach it. In that case, you want a helicopter. And if one helicopter is under maintenance, well, you better have the backup helicopter just so that you didn't pay that $2 million to not have it when you need it. We don't need it. It's just like transit. If we're going to pay for it, Let's actually pay for it. And yet we're paying again for a third helicopter that they're asking for. Yeah, in theory, I suppose this one would replace Air One. But yes, they're going to get five million bucks or six million bucks or whatever it is around that amount, which is significantly more than the last two helicopters, I should point out, uh, to get another one. And we're already spending, I think it's around two million dollars a year on these helicopters. They're not even budgeted to be available for the entire year. Like the service hours are actually quite low. Now, you mentioned there was the motion to debt service these helicopters. Yes. I appreciate this. So essentially how it would work is, you know, council would guarantee a loan for the helicopter so that they could buy it. 
but the police would have to pay for it by finding efficiencies in the police service. To which I say, why can't they just do that already? If it was possible for the police to find this $5 million in efficiencies, why don't they just do that and buy themselves a helicopter? Or look at some other options. I think Councillor Hamilton suggested maybe they could lease or share a helicopter instead of owning one themselves. The last time this came up in 2014, the mayor asked about drones. And at the time, the very sensible answer was that the regulations would make it really difficult. But we're four years on from there. Amazon is delivering packages by drone. Maybe we should take another look at that instead of a helicopter. Global One has a chopper. Let's partner <laughs> with Global and, you know, we're going to report on traffic and then proceed to a police chase. That seems like synergy to me. But we'll move on. The police, hey, you know what? I'm going to celebrate some progress. This is a win. They yeah. had some pushback. The final thing I'll mention on it is I thought it was really great, the pushback we had, because we pushed enough that Councillor Hamilton had to say, look, colleagues, People don't want us to cut the police. She got sort of like nervous that right. we were debating the value of police, which I think is a good place to be. If we're at a place where we're towing the line between questioning how much value are we getting from this service, that's where we're actually going to see savings and good budgetary policy. So kudos, city council. You get a gold star this week. And now to take that gold star off the wall, we're going to talk <laughs> about the metro line. Uh just briefly, because Thales delivered on December 4th. So that means the Metro line is now in service running at full speed, correct? Incorrect. Huh. What do deadlines mean? Yeah, we talked about timelines about the Metro line before, and we thought it was crazy that they set a deadline for December 4th. And administration said at the time, like, if they're not ready we're going to have a backup plan ready to go within three months. And you very rightly questioned why we couldn't have just had that backup plan be our plan A. Anyway, we get to December 4th. Thales says they're ready. The city says, okay, we don't believe you. We're going to do our testing now. And that's going to take two months, sometime in quarter one, which is when this other plan would have been in place. So the timeline to me just doesn't make any sense at all. Almost like the city didn't really have any capability to do the plan B. and Just me. sounded good. Yeah. On the Metro line, there was a column that Elise Stolte put out. And a lot of people said, is this like Thalus advertising? Like it came out very much in defense of Thalus. And in this case, you know, there's plenty of failings that the city had. But the fundamental thing that we can't forget is that in the bidding process, no other company said what the city wanted to do was possible and only Thales said they could do it and in fact Thales couldn't do it that's what we can't forget about this Thales did not understand what they were getting themselves into got into it and now they're eating dirt because of it. paid the price for it as a final note I don't know if you've seen there's Thales has been putting out social media ads I have um this it's is very interesting very incredible uh I don't know how you find advertising. I guess just like browse Twitter enough until you get one. But there's one where it says, you know, Thales has been serving and trusted by Vancouver for 30 years. Trust Thales. And I don't know that you need to advertise a signaling system for like consumer rail. That doesn't seem like something that you market on Twitter. But to build up their brand, it's kind of actually amazing that it took this long to try to get some positive vibes going for what they do. Yeah, a little late, I think, um, after, you know, homework is due. They say, oh, actually, you know, we've been good this whole time. <laughs> uh, we'll move on to one 
Eh, what do you what do you know? It's another transit topic. Yeah. So at least Stolte wrote another column about LRT station, well, transit stations, not just LRT. Funny how, you know, she can move on from being a reporter doing the beat report. And we still talk about her columns every week. We do. I'm going to read her quote because I, I loved it. It kind of illustrates just why she's a columnist now. I hate our transit stations. I hate how cold and lonely they feel. Islands of concrete cut off from anything that makes living in a city worthwhile. It's like she wanted to write this when she was the city hall reporter but couldn't and now is free to tell us what she really thinks. I love it. She's talking about our underground pedway system, which there's such a strong divide. Half of us really like it and half of us really hate it because, you know, on one hand, you can, in the cold of winter, you can get to places without freezing. Yep. But on the other hand, it takes all the life that you would get from a public transit system and pulls it down off the street. And what you get is you have these transit stations where we try to develop life on the street so we don't invest any sort of material liveliness in these transit stations, but the people are all sort of down there. What you get is our downtown, you know, with a city center mall with no doors to the outside, with dead concrete transit stations. Not a very vibrant and exciting place. So Elm Cafe did try to do this with Burrow in Central Station. So they were just up top of the escalators in the LRT station and they had to shut it down partly because they didn't get the business they were looking for. You know, I guess people are just beelining it out of the LRT station when they come out in the morning, um, partly because there was issues with security and safety and things like that. So it's really a, quite a shame. Like they're you know, in some other unusual spaces across the city and they've made it work. So it's a bit disappointing that they couldn't make it work. But it's not just LRT stations. It's also bus transit centers. So you look at something like Millgate, which is really off on its own. Like there's nothing around there that you can get to. And, and that's also a problem, right? When we're building these transit stations and you've got to get off and transfer to another bus or maybe that's your destination and you've got to walk through seas of parking lots in some cases or whatever. Like we're missing opportunities there to have a more livable city. I agree. And really the solution here is to make transit-oriented development, to get transit fully integrated with the street life and the residential life. But that doesn't save our, you know... Existing stations. Yeah, our stations everywhere. It's even, you look at things like over by Northgate Mall, there's literally a mall there. Right. But the transit station is, you know, isolated off this big roadway or even along the Metro Line and Kingsway Mall. You know, you could get off head into the mall, you know, enjoy the life there. But instead, you're across these intersections at these sort of like hostile, isolated transit stations. Even Southgate, which is right there. <laughs> we couldn't build the last 10 meters of Pedway into the mall. You've got to go downstairs and outside in front of the buses and up the stairs. It's kind of crazy. But that's going to wrap it up for this week. It's been a big budget week. And next week might be a big... Knock on wood, they'll pass the budget by next week. Well, they have till Friday, December 14th. Because we do have a special surprise planned for the week of December 17th. We're not announcing it yet, but if budget throws off our timelines, Troy's going to be upset. But until we get there, uh, I've got another ad for you. Because like the city should support these pedways, ATB and the podcast network supports me when I read ads for them. So we're going to talk to you about Otherwise, a variety podcast dedicated to empowering diverse communities living on Treaty 6 territories by sharing stories of our lived experience. And if you feel like you've heard that before, it's because I've said it before. This is something we've talked about in the past, and it's because a new episode was released. It's episode three, and it's talking about who is black community. You can check this episode out 
on otherwiseshow.com and give it a listen. What should people be checking out other than otherwise? I think taprootedmonton.ca is a good place to go. Check out Taproot for all of our latest stories and roundups. We will bring you all the details on the budget and summarize that in our council roundup, which comes out Friday or Saturday, depending on the schedule. And uh, that'll be a good way to do a wrap-up of all the budget discussion we've been talking about. And that budget should have a nice little wrap-up bow by next week. Here's hoping. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.